Hey, this is Phil McGowan. I'm the score mixer from Cobra Kai, and you're listening to Cobra Kai Companion. back to another episode of Cobra Kai Companion and I am Peter. Today you guys uh, we have a special interview uh, joining me is Phil McGowan who is uh, this year alone nominated twice for uh, outstanding sound mixing one for comedy drama and the other non-fiction reality program Cobra Kai and Tina on HBO Max. Welcome Phil. Hi good to be here. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for joining me. But uh, first and foremost, congratulations on on your Emmy nominations. Thank you. Yeah, it's an exciting year to have uh, two nominations at once. Yeah, it um, is. Th- that's not uncommon, is it? Uh, not super uncommon, especially for re-recording mixers, the people who I deliver to, who do the final mix with the sound, music, and dialogue. Um, a lot of times, they work on a bunch of shows that get nominated all together. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, I did a little bit of research. I found out that I'm a few years older than you, so um, <laughs> I, I hope I'm not uh, out of line by revealing your, your age. But by the age of 33, you have at least 178 credits to your name. You're quite a busy man. Yeah, well, I mean, the nice thing about mixing music for film and television is I don't usually spend nearly as much time as, like, the, the team that I deliver to does. Uh, so it allows me to work on a lot of stuff. But, no, it's, it's been great at my age to have that much experience and kind of have wedged myself into this niche of the uh, entertainment industry. Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, growing up, your both of your parents play instruments. Yep, my uh, mom actually has a music education degree. Um, and both my mom and dad grew up playing keyboards and organ and stuff like that in churches and things like that. Um, and then when I was a kid, they were uh, my mom taught piano lessons for a little bit, but that wasn't her full profession uh, in the end. And then my dad was always playing, like messing around with keyboards. He had actually, it's funny, one of the synths that's all over Cobra Kai, especially in season three and four, is the Corgan one. And my dad had a Corgan one that I used to play with as a kid. So I love that Zach and Leo are using some of those sounds. So, like, oh, yeah, I remember that patch from my dad's keyboard. <laughs> so, yeah, I grew up around, you know, musical parents. They weren't professional musicians, but music was always around in the house and playing and things like that. So I started playing piano when I was uh, in second grade. And so, like, growing up, is that something you kind of wanted to pursue, something in music? Or, um, you know, was film always kind of another passion of yours that you were uh, pursuing? Not initially. When I was a kid, I mean, when I was a real little kid, I wanted to be a doctor for a bit. And then for a long time, I wanted to be a pilot. That was my whole plan. Um, Until sophomore year of high school, I had a plan to go to the Naval Academy, get a bachelor's in aerospace engineering, fly whatever the Navy would allow me for 20 years, get out, be an airline pilot. That was like my whole life path until um, it was really junior high and then into high school when I really got into audio production um, and uh, started doing more things with music and then decided around sophomore year of high school that, oh, I think this would be a fun thing to do. And I started looking into colleges or, you know, professions and things to work on. And when I was a kid, 
I was always a DVD bonus features junkie because um, you know when I was in high school it was like mid two thousands YouTube had just started there was there was no um, there were no websites about like mixing techniques or music production techniques there are magazines like Sound on Sound and Mix magazines things like that that are, are music production techniques um, but yeah for me the window into the industry were the bonus features any any DVD of a movie I loved I'd get like the you know special edition whatever that had that second disc and then they'd give me maybe like an eight minute at best feature ad on sound and music or maybe just sound and music um, and a lot of times I'd watch those more than I'd watch the film because it really got me into wanting to get into film sound and film music um, so yeah those are hugely influential yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I was a big fan of those supplemental materials myself. And if I owned a DVD copy of something and, and a Blu-ray came out with more features, I'll, I'll own two, three copies of uh, the same movie just for the extra special features. Um, you mentioned like around sophomore year, you got into kind of sound production. Uh, what was it specifically? What was the classes or were you um, involved in uh, other type of uh, music projects? Um, well, like a lot of engineers, sound engineers, um, I got started like in church. So I grew up going to church um, and started helping out like the sound people there and things like that. And that kind of got me involved. And then this one guy there started doing, um, he would work local concerts around the area. I grew up in central Maine, so it was nothing big. It was like little, you know, a little tiny PV mixer and like speakers on sticks, like small stuff like that, that I started kind of just helping out doing sound. Um, then I got interested in... Um, in recording, I think my the first app I ever used was Audacity, which is like a super like free. Uh, yeah, you probably heard it. A lot of people just That's use it to use. do free editing. <laughs> then uh, I used Free Loops for a moment because uh, that that was free at the time as well. Um, and then uh, I got fortunate enough that uh, I think I was 16. Yeah, when my band director in high school actually had a friend in town who was had a little recording studio and he upgraded to a Pro Tools HD system. And so the guy gave me his uh, old Pro Tools like LE card. Um, and so I had Pro Tools, uh, which is the software I use now. And it's kind of the industry standard audio mixing and editing uh, software. Uh, when I was like 16 and I started playing around with that on a PC in high school and really kind of got into Pro Tools and recording and messing around with editing audio and recording random things. I'd record my friends like playing bongos or just doing, I mean, a lot of this stuff is just stupid high schoolers doing stupid things, but I was having fun. Um, started to also uh, record and, and edit and mix uh, like high school band concerts or we had like a, a like district choir concert thing competition sort of at my high school i recorded all that and like mixed it down had to give everyone like a cd of their you know of their school's performance and all that kind of stuff so really kind of got into audio production and, and really sort of you know some classical recording as well i mean it was high schoolers it was nothing fancy but it was kind of a, a portion of what i do now with with film music um yeah so i was really in high school when i got into that and i was also interested into um in composing when i started i went to berkeley college of music uh, in 2006 and when I started Berkeley I th thought I was going to be a composer who played saxophone in my scores I'd conduct my scores, I'd orchestrate my scores and I'd mix them myself I was like, had this pipe dream of doing you know everything up to the highest level I mean a lot of composers these days when they're starting out they do do everything because they, they can't afford to hire people like me or orchestrators or people like that um, but yeah, I thought I could do it all at the highest level <laughs> when I entered college. But then the great thing about a place like Berkeley is that there's so much talent around you at a music school like that or any, any you know, art school that has a lot of talented people is the same way. It kind of like, humbles you in certain ways. And I kind of realized, oh, mixing and recording is really what I'm best at. Um, so I, you know, narrowed my major down just to production is what I got a degree in eventually. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think you, um, you know, having been born after me, you, you're talking about things that I kind of got involved with in school myself. Uh, like senior year, we had like the senior projects and we made shorts and, you know, you get into groups and things like that. But during that time, digital um, audio production or editing software, they were still relatively new. So a lot of us were still using our VHS cameras and two VCRs and, you know, mixing it and using AV cables. And uh, you'll have your, uh, if people want to get fancy and add a score from a movie to add to their music, you'd have the score on one side and then like the audio from the video on, on the other. It was it was pretty bad, so I do envy you. Um, so you mentioned that you, you really wanted to uh, go into Navy school and then you mentioned Berkeley. At, at what point did you decide to go in Berkeley? And uh, is, is there, uh, I, I guess, a, a bit of a process to get into a, a school like that? Yeah, I, uh, well, that was around that time, sophomore year of high school. Uh, I, I think I actually asked that uh, the guy that I was just kind of helping, the local guy that I was just kind of helping out, kind of became his like assistant on all these concerts. And I was like, oh, I don't know, is there like a college that you can go to for this kind of stuff? And he's like, I don't know, maybe Berkeley or something like that, just what he had heard. So I looked it up that night and I was like, oh, yeah, this looks really cool. Um, and that ended up being the only college I applied to. So thankfully I got in because I didn't apply to any backup schools. Um, so I'm not sure how my life path would have gone, you know, if I would have gone to a different school or something like that if I hadn't gotten accepted. Um, back then, I was sort of at the tail end of, in the olden days, Berkeley was kind of easy to get into, actually. They basically let a ton of people in, but then they had a super high dropout rate after the first semester. So I guess they would let tons of people in, and then, you know, the first semester would weed out people that weren't really, you know, willing to put in the work and things like that. These days, I've heard it's a little bit more, they've really reduced the new president. Well, we have another new president now, but the new president that came in when I started, I think really started to get admissions tightened up, and now you have to audition. When I started, I didn't even have to audition. I auditioned for a scholarship, but I didn't have, it wasn't required. Now I think everyone has to audition, which is typical of most music schools, um, because like a lot of other music schools too, even if you're going to do production or music synthesis, actually that has a different name now, um, but any of the music technology degrees, you still have to have a principal instrument, so you have to play something. Um, though Berkeley's really cool, they even allow, like you can have turntables as a principal instrument now, because you know they really respect the whole like progress of music technology and music production and things like that. So. Um, but it was it was a great school to go to and just being surrounded by so much talent and I mean a lot of people that I work with now either I knew at Berkeley or people that were you know there just before or just after me so it's it's a great community of alumni. So after you get your degree from Berkeley, uh, how do you start getting your feet wet? Um, do you just start did you hire an agent and just start looking for for um, a kind of announcement looking for what you do? Uh, I mean, score mixers don't typically have agents. Sometimes we have managers mm -hmm. that will deal with invoicing and things like that. Um, I kind of wish we did because it'd be nice not to have to work at trying to like find new clients and things like that. So if anyone wants to start a, a mixer agency, that would be kind of cool. Um, I guess maybe some record mixers do, got people that work, uh, you know, that produce uh, albums and stuff like that. Um, but actually, in college, I was touring with the band as their engineer, as their, you know, I was at the soundboard behind them, touring them on the weekends. So I actually stayed with them a little bit after college, hoping they would explode and, you know, get me on this like really big worldwide tour or something like that, living out of a bus and doing live sound stuff because you know that's kind of how I got my start and I still love um, live sound I haven't done it in a long time um, but then that just didn't kind of work out after a few months so I finally decided I was like no nah, I really should move to LA and should really you know I really still love film and film music and film sound uh, so I came out of here in March of 2010 so I finished Berkeley uh, spring of 2009 then moved out to LA spring of 2010 um, 
and I just emailed a bunch of people that I could find info for. And like score mixers back then, none of them were on Facebook or anything like that. Facebook was still, I guess, 2010, maybe it, not quite what it is today. Like everybody wasn't on it back then. It was getting more like that, but it was hard to find contact info for people on the internet. I think I found maybe like five score mixers emails, just cold emailed all of them. Hey, does anybody like need an assistant or an intern or something like that? A couple of people got back to me. This one guy got back to me, Greg Townley. Um, and actually had me call him and kind of gave me a rundown of the industry and like kind of tried to put the fear of God in me a little bit. Like everybody comes to LA, every engineer comes here. It's the Mecca of audio production. Like you got to know this, 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 and that. So I'm like writing down, like, you know, studying, like, okay, I'll make sure I study all that before I move. Um, and this was like, um, the fall of 2009 when I called him. So then I moved out, I, I like let him know. I was like, hey, I'm going to be in LA next week if we can meet up. Um, and he's like, yeah, yeah, we'll just, you know, come by to my studio and we'll just chat and, uh, you know, I thought it was just going to be like giving me some advice and giving me some pointers, but ends up he actually at the time was just about to start a bunch of work and needed an assistant. So it was kind of turned into a little bit of an interview and I got lucky that I landed a, an assistant position with him um, that lasted like three or four months. Um, worked on a couple of films like Killers with Ashton Kutcher, um, Charlie St. Cloud, which was an early Zac Efron, um, Amanda Crew film. Um, couple other smaller things with him he also did a lot of trailer music production which is a really popular i still find myself working a lot of trailer music because it's basically an amplified version of film music um but that lasted like a few months and then he just kind of ran out of work he's like yeah i don't have much going on so give me my studio key back and i'll call you if i you know need anything but then i was kind of out of my own so just kind of bounced around it was basically like a freelance assistant which was tough uh in la with the living expenses here and things like that uh, so that was a hard couple months, but then I landed a full-time position uh, in October 2010 with Trevor Morris, who's best known for Vikings recently, or the Borges, and um, the Tudors, a lot of shows like that, and he does Big Sky right now. Um, so I, I was on staff with Trevor for four and a half years. So I was his like, tech assistant first, doing a lot of composer-related stuff, working on his Logic templates, later Cubase virtual instruments, all that kind of stuff. But he knew I wanted to be a, a mixer. I wanted to be a score mixer. Uh, so eventually he built the, the studio in Santa Monica and I got to be involved in the creation of the, or the build of the studio and kind of the setup of the mixing room there. And then kind of slowly transitioned over to mixing and engineering and recording stuff for him. Um, and then in 2015, I went freelance and that's where I've been ever since, just sort of building up different clients. Um, but that's actually a, another roundabout story. That's how I met Zach and Leo because Trevor's mix studio would also be rented out to other composers to mix their scores because it was a really nice score mixing facility that was actually tailor fit for mixing scores, which is a little bit different than mixing, you know, albums and things like that. Um, and at the time, Zach and Leo were working with Chris Beck, who was a big composer in town, and he had mixed a few of his scores at Trevor's studio. So I was assisting the mixer in those sessions and got to meet those guys because um, they were sending me materials to, you know, put into Pro Tools sessions for those. Um, I think it was mostly RIPD and um, and then the Ant first Ant-Man. Man. That's yeah, so that's really where I met Zach and Leo. And then I went freelance, and then I don't think I did much of them for like a year, but then, you know, they... Um, went on to do their own thing and then eventually started hiring me to do stuff. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think, was it 2017 was the first season of Cobra Kai? It was a few years ago um, that uh, Cobra Kai came along and then we've been working on a bunch of stuff together ever since. Yeah, I've, I've noticed just kind of going through your filmography, I was just like, ah, I've seen that, I've seen that. All Eyes on Me, <laughs> uh, Ozark. Um, you mentioned Zac Efron's Charlie St. Cloud. I think you also sound mixed uh, a Safe Haven uh another film of his um just yeah i was just going down the list and i, I was just like yeah it, he you know is a is, is quite the the working man and and a very familiar um shows you've mentioned vikings um 
Now, when you're doing uh, a show, let's say like 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 Viking, because I, I think I feel like it's, it's got more episodes than Cobra Kai. Is it like sixty something episodes, maybe Viking? Like, it's a lot. Yeah, I mean, it was different for us for some reason. When we were doing it, we would do a twenty episode season. Like season four for us was twenty episodes, but then they released them ten episodes at a time. So our numbers are totally. Like, I think Vikings has like eight seasons, but for us it was only like six or something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean that show started. Oh man, 2013 maybe 2012. I think it was when we first started working on Vikings. Um, I didn't work on the later seasons quite as much after I was uh, freelancing on my own. Um, I would do you know whenever they had the live orchestra, then Trevor would hire me to mix those episodes. Um, but yeah, the first three or four seasons I did quite a bit of work on for Vikings. So uh, like a TV show versus a a feature or even documentary where um, is not necessarily like like a linear you know st- storytelling you, you're being shown clips and then there's like um uh audios from other interviews and things like that which uh, of those do you find a little bit more challenging um when it comes to sound mixing uh i mean these days tv and film is kind of the same music wise you know if you go back basically before the sopranos tv was kind of its own thing it was all sitcoms it was seinfeld and friends and you know there's little bumper cues and tv music was kind of a thing versus film music but now that we're still in the golden age of television um a lot of especially cable productions um which it seems like network networks have started to pick up the cable production sort of style um everything's become more cinematic you know really tv shows these days are kind of more like extended movies that are broken up into episodes so music production there's really not a whole lot different other than um, just the amount of music in each episode is you know varies from anywhere from you know a few minutes to you know like some Cobra, uh, the 310 the one uh, Cobra Kai episode they got nominated for I think is like 40 minutes of music it's almost wall to wall music um, so music throughout almost the whole episode um, but I mean honestly Cobra Kai is a good example of a lot of that music really sounds like it could be in a film or it's from a film you know we're, we've recorded live orchestra and tons of other musicians drums guitars and it's you know really big epic music or then you know sort of more dramatic um music for you know some of the more dialogue based scenes and things like that it's not really ever written like oh we need to make this sound like a tv show these days it's very much um the same as film right so we have spoken with uh zach and leo before now for the project of cobra kai is that something that they brought you on to or how, how did you um book cobra kai as a sound mixer yeah so for me um composers are always my clients so i'm always hired by the composers um and zach and lee are one of my main clients then you know like danny and sonder who do ozark and did tina as well um, they hire me on pretty much everything that they do so typically i get hired by the composer and the composers go and get these projects so whatever they're working on i inevitably usually work on as long as the schedule works out um so yeah they um yeah, that's how that's how usually I get the project. So Cobra Kai just came on their lap, and then they started hiring me. Uh, there was another mixer, Sean O'Brien, who was doing a lot of good work on Cobra Kai in the first two seasons, I think. Um, and some of that was just scheduling because <laughs> the uh, the first couple seasons were a whirlwind uh, to get production done for the music and the sound. So, um, in your in your position, do you do you do anything during like the main production of, of filming of the show, or are you mainly like post? Uh, 
purely all in post. The music and sound all happens at the very end, uh, as far as the production of it goes. Sometimes composers, they'll start... I mean, some composers like to go all the way back and read the script before they even start filming, and they'll maybe make some themes and get some ideas going. Um, then, like, I know John Williams, for example, has always said, I don't want to I don't want to know anything about the movie until the first cut is done. So when the first assembly, um, like the director's cut, before they start doing finer edits is done, he likes to watch the film and then get an impression from that and get a vibe and kind of get a mood from the film. Um, so there's kind of a, you know, two different ways the composers like to go. Either they like to be involved earlier, they like to wait till just about the very end and then sort of be inspired by what they're seeing on, on the screen. So, but for me, since I'm basically almost a, a subcontractor of the composer, I'm at the very, very end of the music production. Um, I mean, sometimes if it's going to be something a little bit more unique, or if we're going to do a lot of recording that I'm going to be involved in, sometimes we'll have conversations earlier, like, oh, we have, you know, this idea to do this or that, or like a good example would be on Superman Returns, the 12 drum circle thing. I'm sure that was a whole conversation that they had ahead of time, how they were going to record that, where they were going to record that, how they're going to mic it, you know, kind of conceptual stuff. Um, but typically, if it's not something like that that has sort of a unique production, I'm sort of the very, very end. I'm, I'm the end of the music production, and the music production is at the very end of the production of the TV show or the film. Um, so we're kind of the, the very last thing to happen until they start doing, you know, uh, mastering and uh, duplication and all that of the film before it gets released or TV show. So um, can you talk about the, like, the technicality uh, of your job? So are, are you having to mix... Um, you know, the music that Leo and Zach score with like ADR and also the the recording that uh, I believe it's Tiffany McKnight, I, I believe, who kind of mics up the, the actors uh, during filming. Oh, she might be the uh, the production sound mixer. I, I strictly work on the music. Um, so basically what I'm doing is almost like a um, what we would call a pre-dub um, of the music before it gets sent off. There's another team uh, that mixes the dialogue sound effects with my music mixes. Um, then they'll also mix in any songs that are in there. So I never deal with any of the songs because those are just those are selected by a music supervisor and then the music editor will edit those into place. Um, and then that's just usually a stereo mix. You know the same stereo mix you'd have on spotify or what have you um that goes in sometimes they'll give them stems they'll have the vocal excuse me separate from the band or something like that but especially a lot of like cobra kai has a lot of legacy music from the 80s 90s and stuff like that a lot of that i'm sure it's just a stereo file that they're editing in and then you know integrating into the sound of the show um, but for me yeah I'm, I'm, i mean i kind of bridge the gaps so i usually try to have a good conversation with the re-recording mixers um who are going to be mixing the final mix and i'll be delivering my um, mixes too um, but then typically I'm really more strictly in the music department. Now, um, since um, it's 310 that uh, you, you were nominated for, is there any other episodes that you were particularly uh, uh, proud with? Um, just maybe just the, uh, I don't know if you ran into any obstacles and you know what, like that turned out pretty darn good. Uh, any situations like that? I mean, the whole season three really amped it up. I mean, seasons one and two were great, but as far as the music production goes, um, Zach and Leo really, you know, brought it on season three. And it sort of is a, I mean, I feel like the first couple episodes were not much, you know, not as much going on and not as big. I seem to remember 305 was a big, because I think that's when they go to Japan, right? Yep, Miyagi-Do, um, yep. That's where a bunch of new themes come in and, it, you know, it gets a little more epic. I remember 305 and maybe 306 were kind of bigger episodes that had some really cool music in them. And then typically it slows down for a couple episodes and and then the last two, like three or nine, three or ten, is the big push and the big finale. Um, 
and I remember having more days for those episodes because it was just so much music and such big music. You know, the the more elements in a in a uh, piece of music for uh, what we would call a cue in the show, the longer it takes me because I'm working with you know multiple overdubs of live orchestra and drum kit and guitars and then a bunch of synths and just tons of stuff. All and then we had choir as well on uh, on season three, um, especially for the last you know the whole duel of the snakes. Uh, um, sequence that was like what mm. ten and a half, twelve minutes of just wall to wall music. It was like five or six cues back to back. Um, so yeah, it was it was really fun to work on just big epic music. I mean, it felt like I was working on a movie. It, you kind of forget that it's a TV show. The the you know production value and the writing quality is so high. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, now I'm not sure if you worked on this episode because I'm still trying to um, uh, figure out like the audio syncing when it comes to like. Uh, jokes like uh specifically in i believe it was 207 where um you know stingray kind of makes his appearance and he's got the new new look and there's kind of uh the play of i'm forgetting the name of the score but then there's that little gag at the end of the score where it kind of uh it's like an epic fail kind of thing for stingray you know where i don't know if you know what i'm talking about i think the horn just kind of (laughs) is that you having to kind of line that up for for the joke to kind of work um i I do kind of remember a cue called like stingray fails or something like that um no usually all the syncing is done on their end um because they'll write it to picture so zach and leah will you know usually they'll have a spotting session um with um i'm not sure on this show who but usually it's a you know some of the producers or um sometimes the director of the episode for film it's always the director but for tv shows it's sometimes a showrunner sometimes the, the producers so they'll spot the show usually they have temporary music we call it temp music um that especially if it's if it's a film or if it's in first season of a tv show it'll be music from other stuff stuff that is not the show at all i would assume for cobra kai at this point they're probably with previous uh, episodes music but so the editors um, when they cut the you know actual picture together they'll put temporary music in they'll be like oh we want this vibe here this that there so the music timing is kind of constructed loosely by the editors and then they'll play it back and play it for zach and leo and they'll discuss it and take a bunch of notes like oh this scene we want this different or like this temp music really works do something like that or as far as season two i'm sure that sometimes they'd be like oh we use this cue from season one it works fine, just like refine it a bit and just use that. And then that saves some time so Zach and Leo can focus on the newer music that has to be written uniquely for that episode. Um, but by the time it gets to me, everything's in sync and everything's in place. Um, I'm just sort of enhancing, making it sound better, making sure that everything's organized. Because I also have to deliver what we call stem, stems to the dub. Um, and the dub is the the final mix where they actually combine the sound effects, music, and dialogue. So I have to make sure that I'm splitting out the orchestra separate, the drums separate, the guitars, the synths, you know, if there's choir or vocals or anything like that. I have to actually give them separate audio tracks that um, are mixed. So they have all of my processing and my effects and things like that. And when you play them all together, they sound like my full mix. But then they have the ability, you know, if there's, uh, or like Leo plays a lot of Iwi, for example, you know, Iwi, Shakuhachi, and things like that. Um, sometimes that might conflict with the dialogue line so if that's on a separate uh, audio file for them instead of turning down all of the music to, to clear that uh, dialogue line they can just turn down the shagahachi for example or the orchestra or choir or whatever it is so it gives them the ability to kind of fine-tune the music with around the dialogue and the sound effects without having to just you know yank the entire music down um, so i have to make sure that's all organized and that's all you know delivered in the right way and then yeah i have to make sure it's still in sync in the right uh, place and everything's labeled correctly and there's definitely a, a lot of organization and sort of technical aspect to my job 
um, which is what I love about it because I still get to be creative. I still get to, you know, bring different ideas with effects and reverbs and EQs and things like that and all the fun mixing things that I do. But at the same time, yeah, I have to make sure that everything technically is correct. What about um, when it comes to surround sound and having to place like sound effects on certain speakers or anything like that? Is that also kind of something that you uh, um, deal with? Sound effects would be the re-recording mixer. So typically these days, um, there's just two re-recording mixers. So one deals with sound effects, and the other one deals with dialogue and music. Um, for me, I usually mix all the music and surround sound. So 5171 or now, I'm starting to do um, score mixing and Dolby Atmos as well. Uh, for Cobra Kai, since it started out as a YouTube show, and I think just for technical reasons, because they were when they, they were doing the final mix of season one at a much smaller facility that couldn't handle me delivering surround sound. Um, for me, actually, Cobra Kai is one of the few shows that I still mix music just in stereo. Um, so I'm just, you know, dealing with left and right, just the front two speakers. And it sounds to me when I watch the show, it sounds like they mostly just leave it there um, in the front speakers. Because sometimes the music, um, if there's just a stereo mix of the score, um, they'll use different processors to take stereo and make it surround. And sometimes it works, sometimes it sounds kind of phasey and kind of funky. Uh, for Cobra Kai, it sounds like they're mostly just leaving the music in stereo, which is great because it sounds like it did um, when I mixed it with Zach and Leo. Um, but yeah, typically, and I, I've, I've tried to think about trying to, you know, future seasons doing the score and surround, but it gets complicated because they're um, they're usually reusing some of the music from the earlier seasons and that'll just be stereo and then it's, you know, two different formats. Um, but yeah, for Cobra Kai, just stereo, they usually... Um, I get to have some more fun on other shows um, with the surround sound aspect. What about uh, sequences, um, specifically in season three when uh, Sam and Tori encounter each other, there's sometimes some slow-mo. Is there any kind of like audio um, technicalities when it comes to uh, some of those sequences? I mean, it's certainly complicated for the sound editors um, because usually, yeah, once you slow down a, a sequence, so you, you know, you shoot it at full frame rate and then you slow it down or, or at a high frame rate and then you play it back at a normal frame rate, whatever sound was recorded on set is unusable usually because um, it, it doesn't usually slow down and play back the same way or it's all choppy. So typically when they do a slow-mo like that, all the sound that you're hearing is all added. It's either ADR lines that are added on top. Um, typically, they'll add lots of reverb to things to make it kind of spacey. I mean, it depends what the scene is and what it's doing. Um, but yeah, usually there's no sound once they slow it down. And if there is, it's kind of probably choppy and garbly and sounds weird because slowing down audio doesn't work quite the same way as just slowing down the frame rate um, of a video. So even if there was audio, it probably is not very usable. Um, and then music, I mean, th by the time it gets to us, once we get a video file, um, of the edit to record, uh, sorry, to, to write music to. Um, usually by then, that's all kind of in place, and then the music, we're just they're just going to write it, and then I'll mix it like any other piece of music, just over that. But oftentimes, music is used to kind of, you know, glue over those scenes. If it's going from full motion to slow motion, the music is one of the few things that's usually constant through that, so it kind of helps smooth out those transitions between the slow-mo and the full motion um, video. Uh, you mentioned that um, you know you, you do work, uh, I think mainly in post. Uh, can you kind of give us a gist of like um, the 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 process of of what you do in post? Like when when do you see the entire season when you actually start uh, working on sound mixing? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I I receive it, so I always have the you know every episode I I, I have you know the whole video file to, to work with. Um, typically, I'm jumping around though, because when I get an episode, you know, I get all the cues from Zach and Leo, um, and I'm also I mean, half my day is just sort of you know <laughs> combining everything. So I'm getting orchestra recorded in Eastern Europe. I got to download all those files, organize them into the folders. Then I'm getting um, musicians in LA have recorded here. They've recorded drums and guitars, and then there's all the elements that come from Zach and Leo's computers, you know, the sequencers where they actually write the music. So they give me all of their, you know, sampled percussion and their synthesizers and all that kind of stuff. That all has to get merged together. So I have to kind of collate all these elements together, get them all in one Pro Tools session per piece of music. Um, and then I'm mixing it and blending them and make them all, making them all work together and sound good as a cohesive cue. Um, but typically for Cobra Kai, it's just, well, I usually have one day per episode, though. I remember 310 was two days because it was so much music. And I'm typically doing that just before they're doing the final mix of the episode. So literally we're pushing it right to the very end because usually the producers are giving Zach and Leo creative notes on the writing of the music right up until the very end. And then sort of once things are all approved, then we can record orchestra and then we can you know, do the mixing process. And then I'm mixing it in a day. And then usually the next couple days after that is when they're, they're final mixing the show and then it, it goes out the door uh so it, yeah it's, it's sometimes kind of breakneck to get it all delivered in time so once it gets into your hands it takes about two weeks to finish the, a season um well it's, it's usually spread out so i mean network tv back in the day you would do every week you know you, you do an episode every week and it would be kind of fast sometimes depending on what the show was uh, Cobra Kai is definitely more of a, a cable TV production where it's kind of spread out over several months usually because they're they're usually frogging you know they'll they'll film the first episode or sometimes they'll film a middle episode and a more an easier episode then all that footage goes to the editor the editors are working on it then they're getting tons of notes kind of assembling that um, and then you know that episode takes however many months to make then the next one started filming here so that one overlaps here so basically it's, it's all all the episodes take a long process for all of the different steps and they're all kind of overlapped um cobra kai remember it's usually you know if i'll do like usually batches of episodes because we usually try to record i think two or three episodes at a time when we do um recording with eastern europe with the orchestra so they'll finish maybe like three episodes go record it and then i'll have three days all together get all those episodes done and then deliver it and then sometimes they won't actually the, you know the first one i'll need to get it done right away for the dub um, but then the dubs might be spread out because they have other things they're doing visual effects too um the sound teams have to clean up all the dialogue and the you know do adr and things like that so it's usually spread out but it's just like little one day chunks that are you know all kind of peppered throughout my calendar um and then yeah as you've seen in my imdb i'm usually bouncing back and forth between a bunch of different projects that are doing the same kind of thing so my schedule usually is kind of a mess because <laughs> i'm just yeah. bouncing between different shows all the time i i thought it was actually um uh, pretty interesting too that I, uh, one of one of your credits uh was a short called the shadow that also had uh, marty and jesse cove in it too Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I've never seen that. I was like, I saw the poster for it. I was like, that looks very familiar. And then I was like, oh, okay, yeah, the coves are in it too. So yeah, you you've literally been bouncing around doing different things. Yeah, and like I said, yeah, an episode's usually one or two days, and then films, depending on how much music is in there, is anywhere from. I mean, I've done a film in two days. If it's not much music, up to you know a couple weeks of production. If there's going to be a lot of recording and, and mixing and things like that. Um, I mean, I would love to do 
an entire season of TV in like a week or two and just do it all together and keep my head in the same space. But yeah, right. the the way the schedules work out, it just they they never have everything done. Basically, once the music's done, the producers use all right. Let's get it. Let's mix it. Let's get it get it finished. Then you know, next episode's a couple weeks from now or something like that. Right. Oh yeah. wow. Um, so Tina uh, is is your other uh, Emmy nomination. I, I definitely you know, anybody that um, you know is a fan of Tina Turner. Um, uh, a fan of music, uh, it, it's it's really worth watching. I watched it last night after um, having seen that you've been nominated for that. So it's on HBO Max for anyone interested. Um, can now I, I did read a, a interview um, with you, kind of discussing this project. Now the uh, I, I believe you mentioned the director hired you, hired you for this. Yeah, that was a bit more unusual. So. Um... Well, for, for part of it. So Danny and Sonder, the guys that do Ozark, um, did the score. So I, you know, when I started that project, it was just, oh, it was another documentary score. I think it was only, gonna, I think it took me three days maybe to mix the, the score, the original music that they wrote for the documentary. Um, and then like a couple of days in, or maybe even on the last day, um, the, I, I can't remember if it was one of the directors, if it was Dan or TJ or one of the producers, they were like, hey, Phil, like we have, um, so we have these multi-track recordings so they had all the elements you know all the drum mics and the guitars and the vocals and all this stuff for these uh, three concert pieces that are going to be in the film and lawrence the re-recording mixer who i'm nominating with he's like well i'm not really like a music mixer it's not really my specialty he's like i probably could do a mix of all this stuff for the film but you know if we can have someone else do this that'd be better and if they can just give me a good surround sound mix of these concerts that'd be great and so they they were like well we have this guy that danny and Sonner are having mixed the score let's see if he wants to do it so they just you know cold emailed me or they called me i can't remember which one it was uh they were like hey you want to mix some like live tina turner performances for this documentary i was like hell yeah of course i do that sounds great um so yeah i was getting these archival recordings from these live concerts which actually for me was kind of it was kind of full circle for my career because like i said i got started in live sound doing you know live concert mixing um you know inside the you know venue so now it was kind of me mixing a concert but in surround sound in my studio here for a film it was kind of like all my you know experiences to come together um yeah so they did the very beginning and the end of the film so um Try to remember what the film was uh, at the first song at the beginning of the film, but then the best is at the end and goes over the the credits, um, and those are both in the same concert. Those were from a 1990 Barcelona concert from the Foreign Affair tour, and then I Can't Stand the Rain is a performance from 1988. Actually, from the day before, it was April 3rd, 1988. I was born on April 4th, 1988, so it's kind of trippy to be mixing something that was recorded the day before I was born. Yeah. Um, but that was in the middle. So basically, you know, they had a rough audio. They had like a you know the I can't st- uh, the um, Barcelona stuff at the beginning of the end. You know, it was like a VHS or laser disc release in the 90s. So the audio mix on there was it didn't sound like it was you know mixed at all. I think it maybe was just like the live board feed and they just sort of mastered it. Uh, it wasn't terrible, but it just you know it wasn't quite up to the standards of the rest of the film. It was only in stereo. It was a little bit tinny sounding. So they were like, well, we need it mixed. Um, and they went to actually I got links from um, Iron Mountain in. Um, in England, which is like an archival service, they actually like went into the vaults and dug the tapes up. I think they had to bake the tapes too, which is a, a thing you have to do with old analog tape. Um, the magnetic tape, when it's stored for a while, sometimes the tape can start to stick to it together. So when you try to reel it out, it's all stuck together. Um, so if they just sometimes they'll just bake it at like 110 degrees or something like that, and it'll loosen the tape up, and they can get one play. They can play it back once, transfer it to a digital recorder. Um, and then that's what I received. So I got transfers from all these um, multi-track tapes, and yeah, that was just really fun. It was kind of crazy to be able to just like solo her vocal and like and, you know see it on the screen, and that's just Tina Turner. 
Um, so that was fun that I got to do both sort of live concert song mixing and score mixing on that documentary. So yeah, really, really proud of that one. Yeah, and you should be. Um, you know, I enjoyed the film, and uh, I'm a big fan of music too, all all genres. So when I saw that, uh, yeah, you were nominated for that as well. I I, I just thought that it was kind of, um, you know, it wasn't really uh, research. It was just kind of like, oh, uh, you know, this this was a bonus for me. You know, just kind of some added fun to kind of uh, kind of watch. Um, as we get ready to wrap up, I, I feel if it's anybody, it's you to kind of give. Uh, advice to anybody that might be interested in getting into sound editing because um, you have so much under your belt. Uh, uh, what what advice could you give to people, um, you know, that uh, who, who wants to start out or looking to kind of get their feet wet? I mean, fortunately, these days there's um, tons of great resources online to get started. Um, there's a ton of stuff on YouTube. Then there's websites like Pure Mix or Mix with the Masters or a couple websites where literally you're just watching a professional mixing engineer with their with their session open, seeing exactly what they did for a bunch of songs that you've probably heard of, like big hit songs. Um, and they'll show you their production techniques and things like that. Pensado's Place is a great um, YouTube channel that uh, they just interview engineers like myself and mixers and sometimes songwriters and producers. They have all sorts of people on there. Um, and then just, you know, I mean, these days everyone has GarageBand on their laptop or Logic doesn't cost that much. Um, people that are interested in music production, I mean, there's, there's, it's really easy to get started. And just, you know, you know, if you play guitar or you sing or something like that, just start messing around with all the software and then always be learning. You know, there's, um, even me, I'm always, I'm, I'm watching those videos as well and seeing, you know, if there's new ideas or even though I'm very experienced, people do things differently. Or even sometimes people that are just starting out, they'll do something technically wrong, but it's kind of interesting. I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's, I never would thought I'd think to do that because some parts of it are maybe quote unquote wrong. Um, but yeah, any, any good professional is always learning, you know, as soon as you stop learning, then that's when you plateau and you don't kind of progress in your, in your career. I mean, I'm sure that applies to any profession. Um, but yeah, just, just keep, be a, be a sponge, just absorb and just learn as much as you can. Then if anyone decides they want to do it professionally, um, there are some college programs like, you know, I went to, you know, Berkeley for music production and things like that. Um, but some people just move to Nashville or New York or here to L.A. or London or what have you and just get a job at a studio and just sort of work their way up that way. That's sort of the old school way before audio was a, a major. I mean, it was only like I think Berkeley was one of the first in the 80s to even have an audio production program as a major. Um, so there's a couple different routes that way to go if you want to go into professionally. But at the beginning, yeah, just just have fun and just learn as much as you can and absorb and watch videos and, you know, and then always be listening, you know, it, even though. You know, we're not actually playing an instrument when we're mixing and we're recording things like that. Um, as far as learning how to mix and how to, you know, process sound and things like that, a lot of it is just is listening. You know, listening to other albums. Um, I mean, you'd be amazed if you, you know, if you, there's a, a favorite song or album you had, if you sit back and try to re-listen, it's like, oh, well, what's the reverb on the vocal doing? Or what, like, how loud are the drums versus the bass versus the guitars? Where are they placed? Are the guitars really wide? Or are they just in the middle? You know, the drums panned really wide, or they kind of, you know, narrow. You start kind of critically listening to things. You know, you'll you'll learn things that you, or hear things you never heard before, even in things that uh, that you think you know really well. And that's really kind of one of the key things. I'm always listening to music, and I'm not necessarily always hyper analyzing it, but I'm always picking up like, oh, that's a really cool effect on that vocal, or that's a cool way to do this, this or that. Um, and you know, that's kind of how you learn what things should sound like, because all these tools don't mean anything if you don't have like an objective or kind of an opinion of what to do with them. For listening to um, you know the technicals of, of the instruments and, and sound mixing, is there a soundtrack or score 
I guess preferably score. Is there a score that you would recommend or maybe just one of your favorites for, for people to go and check out? I mean, that's one of the fun things about working in film music is um, genre-wise, it kind of runs the gamut, and Cobra Kai is a perfect example of that. I mean, some of the music cues are I'm just straight up mixing like 80s glam metal <laughs> versus then like, you know, the middle of the orchestral parts of Duel of the Fates is totally like, you know, Jerry Goldsmith, John Williams style, big yeah. orchestral film uh, kind of things. So it's hard to say one specific score album because it depends on what style of score. Um, but I mean, I grew up with John Williams and James Newton Howard and Ooh, Jerry yeah, Goldsmith yeah. and yeah, all those 80s and 90s, you know, um, orchestral scores or, or James Horner. I mean, probably for me, one of my favorite scores and, and is a phenomenal sounding recording is uh, Apollo 13 mm -hmm. by James Horner. Um, and that ties into, you know, I was an aviation nerd, space nerd back then. That Just that phenomenal score, phenomenal soundtrack. Um, then newer stuff, I mean, you know, Social Network was really cool. That was a really kind of redirection. And now everybody, you know, for the last 10 years, everyone's been kind of integrating those sounds into a lot of their projects. That was definitely groundbreaking. Um, also a fan of Hans, of course. So um, everywhere from the, you know, actually we kind of referenced some older Hans, like 90s Hans, like The Rock or... Um, I'm trying to think what's the... There's an old movie uh, with uh, George Clooney from the 90s. Not The Interpreter, but it was something with an eye. Um, but yeah, some of those old, or Crimson Tide is another good one, or Drop Zone, you know, those are kind of fun, like legacy this 90s, you know, Hans Zimmer kind of sounds, which some of that stuff ended up into, into Cobra Kai, uh, or inspired some of that. But then I love Inception and Interstellar, and those are more kind of produced sounding. So it's orchestra with synths and with guitars and kind of, you know, mixed in a way that like those scores aren't always easy to perform like you know john williams that was written for a full orchestra so you can just a full orchestra can just play that but you know hans is a good example of, of really using the studio as a tool using it as an instrument you know doing things that you wouldn't be able to do just with an orchestra sitting on a stage um so yeah those are some good references there too is there a dream composer that you like to collaborate with uh, I mean, any of those that I mentioned there, <laughs> you know, those are all some of my favorites. Thomas Newman, too. I'm a huge Thomas Newman fan. Um, I've worked with some of the musicians that I've worked with Tom, but I haven't actually met him before. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, I mean, it would be fun and be amazing to, to work with some of these um, currently huge composers. But, you know, part of my career advice, too, I guess, for other people and what I'm trying to do as well is trying to find the next John Williams or the next James Newton Howard or the next John Powell, huge John Powell fan as well. Um, you know, because all of, all of the score mixers that mix for those guys, you know, they started with them when they were around my age, mid to late 30s. Um, and then, you know, their careers kind of, you know, took off with along with those composers, um, like the guy that mixes for James and Howard and John Williams, Sean Murphy. You know, he kind of took off that way. Then Alan Meyerson really took off when he started working with Hans. You know, so I guess I would love to find whoever's going to, you know, hopefully take off next or, you know, one of the people who are going to take off next as far as composers. Yeah, you're, you're still young, so, you know, I'll, I'll keep an eye on, on your uh, future endeavors here and see if you're going to up with some of those people. Um, yeah, I, I again, I want to thank you for your time. Um, obviously, we'll be rooting for uh, you and the, you know, the rest of the team for Cobra Kai uh, come um, the, the Emmys here. Uh, now, do you welcome uh, kind of in, uh, any interactions on social media, uh, Twitter or Instagram, anything like that? For yeah, I'm probably most active on Instagram. Film Mix is my, uh, it's P-H-I-L-M underscore M-I-X. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's a play on words, I guess. <laughs> uh, that's my Instagram handle. Uh, Twitter, uh, it's Phil underscore McGowan. I'm on there, sort of. I don't really do much with Twitter, but, you know, I try to retweet stuff, you know, that's Cobra Kai related. Zach and Leo seem to be more active on there, so I, I try to retweet all their stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, yeah, Instagram's kind of the main one for me. 
I'm still waiting for my Mondo delivery here with the uh, the vinyls and, and, and cassette tapes. So I'm looking forward yes. to that. Yeah. Um, now, for anybody you know that uh, maybe just stumbled upon this interview and haven't uh, checked any of our other interviews out, uh, we do have. This is our 82nd interview with um, somebody from the you know cast and crew for the Karate Kid movies and Cobra Kai. You can visit Cobra Kai Companion Companion with the K dot com. Um, right before Phil's interview, we spoke with Thomas Ian Griffith uh, about his time filming the Karate Kid Part Three. Uh, a very rare interview. Uh, I don't. I don't know if there's any other interviews with him out there. So uh, check it out. We've spoken with uh, John, Josh, and Hayden uh, multiple times. Sholo, Jacob, um, uh, Gianni, many of the cast members. So uh, check us out there. On Twitter, I am pretty active, Cobra Kai Pod, and on Instagram, at Cobra Kai Companion. Again, companion spelled with K. So I want to thank you guys all, all for your continued support, and we'll catch you guys next time. Haven't you done enough, princess?